Edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 22nd, 2017, and I'll send out, even though I know he won't hear it because he never listens, a happy birthday to my son Matthew, who will turn today 28 years old. You want to feel old when your kids are close to 30, you start really feeling freaking old. Uh, actually, we'll be talking a little bit more about feeling your age when we talk about our song of the day, which, once again, by the magic of synchronicity, will fit nicely into today's topic, even though it may not seem like it at first. So what is today's topic? Today's topic is challenges in, mo in modern homesteading and solutions to them. And we're going to talk about the homesteading movement and kind of one of my, uh, I, I hate to use the word, but prophecies, I guess, or predictions prognications, whatever, about the future, going all the way back to like 2009, about this modern homesteading movement and, and what that's all about. But, but it's also how it's bringing to the surface a lot of frustrations from people, either trying to homestead and they can't quite get into the homesteading mode, they can't get started, they can't get a place to do it, um, or they have unreasonable expectations and what that leads to, getting frustrated and feeling like it's not all worth it, Things like that. And, and to me, homesteading is something that if you're not enjoying it, you're doing it wrong. There's so many opportunities within homesteading. And I think one of the problems is people want to do everything. Well, imagine if you just picked the stuff that you really liked and did the most productive stuff that you liked. And then you decided whether or not, well, maybe I want to add one more thing. Maybe I don't. Maybe I'll try it, and if it works, then maybe I'll go a little bit bigger with it. And if it doesn't, I don't enjoy it. I won't do that. I'll try something else. That's just one, one of the many types of, of mental solutions, because I think a lot of this is mental. It's like money. Like, you know, money is 10% what you do and 90% how you have the mental fortitude to do what you know you're supposed to do with that ten, other 10% of the effort, right? And then you win with money. And I think life works that way, and certainly homesteading is real-life stuff, man. And that's what works the same way. All that more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. You know, last night, after I did some work that I'll even talk about when I get into the main subject today, I had a pain in my back, like right behind my right shoulder blade where it almost feels like it's in, tucked in behind the edge of the back side of the shoulder blade. We've all had that. And the muscle was just in a knot. I mean, we're like, it was where you could, it's hard to reach, but you can reach it yourself and you find a spot and you push on it and it just hurts. And I went and I got the deep heat ointment that I have from Western Botanicals. I put it on it. I sat down. My wife goes, I hate the way that smells because it's got a lot of menthol in it, you know. She's like, you're going to have to put a shirt on. I'm like, as soon as my back dries, I'll put a shirt on. But 15 minutes later, I was enjoying the TV with my wife, who was no longer complaining about the smell, and that knot just just unwound. This is one of the many incredible, great products I have at Western Botanicals. And if you want to make your own herbal stuff, they will sell you the raw herbs. They'll sell you the materials to make things. They're just awesome. Real people will answer the phone and help you out. And if you are an MSB member, they will give you their $50 membership for free, which will give you 25% off all the products. So they are just a great supporter all around. Next up today, ReadyMade Resources. They are the company that does what they say and say what they do. 
All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. They'll show up at your house. Ready-made resources, again, guys, yes, you have to think about our sponsors this way. How long have they been with us? Some of you that have been with me since the Jetta days, we'll talk about that a bit today, you know that some of these sponsors, most of the sponsors we have, have been with us since I was doing this podcast in my car back in 2010. Ready-made resources was like our second or third sponsor to come up and, and sponsor the show. They're still with us. So when you need something for your prepping, please take a look at what our sponsors offer first. And if you can do business, do business with them because they've been supporting this community for just such a dadgone long time. Next up, before we get into the show, let's take a look at the year in history. The year in history this year, the year 49 AD, and we continue with the saga of ancient Rome. A new wife for Claudius, contributed by David Verne. You want to talk about the soap opera? Where do you hear this crap? Now that Miscellania is dead, Claudius needs a new wife. His son, Britannicus, is only eight years old and isn't a guaranteed heir. There is no shortage of candidates, but each member of the cabinet backs a different woman. Narcius supported Alina Patina, Claudius's former second wife, while Paulus and Callistius supported Agrippina, Claudius's niece, and Lolia Polina, Claudius's former third wife, was also considered. Considered Agrippina was exiled by her brother Caligula and had returned to Rome a few years into Claudius's reign. In the end, Agrippina is chosen, and on New Year's Day, Claudius marries his niece. Agrippina is ambitious, and within weeks, she schemes to have Paulina charged with attempting black magic. Paulina isn't given a trial and will be killed while in exile. She also gets Claudius to adopt her son, Lucius Dominus and Horboris, as his son and heir. After the adoption, Lucius' first name will be changed to dun 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 Nero. We all know that. Either we don't know the whole story, we all know that's not good, right? Okay, my take by David Verne. Agrippina was chosen to cement Claudius's relation within the family. She was the daughter of the famous general Germanicus. Her birthday will be a public holiday well into the third century. The recent failed coup was an obvious reminder to Claudius that very few people respected him enough not to attempt overthrowing him. However, this decision was a very bad one. The ancient Romans were more lenient about marrying within families than in the modern era, but even to them, this was incest. The historian Tactius comments on the marriage, saying, From it would come terrible consequences. These terrible consequences will be Nero becoming emperor in a few years. Um... Here's what I, I think is interesting and how it plays in the modern day. We have been conditioned to believe that if like one group of people is a bad group of people and some other group of people is opposing that group of people, that that other group of people must be good. Not so much, right? So when you look at Agrippina, and you, she was exiled, but now she's back, and she was exiled by Caligula, who was flipping nuts, crazy, murderous, psychopath. Oh, maybe she wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, 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 she was. Yes, she was indeed. And uh, just, you know, whenever you hear, like, the dichotomic choice, realize that sometimes both choices are really, 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 really freaking bad. On that note, I want to remind you guys about MSB today, and I want to tell you we still have that sale going on. And I want to apologize to any of you that had problems trying to sign up for the sale. We had some bugs going on. Some of you weren't getting the ability to put the discount code in. Some of you weren't getting the discount code to work. And some of you, the discount code was working but not working for the renewal. So it's all squared away now. 
25 bucks a year, and that discount applies to renewals. You can only do this if you're a new member. I've been hearing from a lot of people today, I logged in and it won't let me renew. That's because you have an active account. And if you have an active account, you cannot renew early because you'll get billed twice. The original one and the new one will both bill you, and then you'll email me and you'll tell me I'm an evil, horrible person who stole money from you. So I'm preventing you from setting up double billing and then blaming me for it. It's the only thing that I can do. So this is new members and expired members only. There is an account management page that's not visible. I'm going to work with Ben. We're going to get it visible. But right now, I don't want to go into the details. But there is stuff on it that will confuse you and make you worry about things that you don't need to worry about. I need to figure out either how to make those things go away or how to make sure that you get an explanation without emailing me asking for one, which basically is this. And I'd have to say it every day to stay on top of it. It's pretty simple. When you have an account, let's say it's a one-year account, what it will say on your account management page is like 12 months or 12 months renewal if it was a renewal. And it'll say, you know, the date you signed up, and it'll say till lifetime. That's just because the system holds it that way, but the date is the renewal date, and it'll either renew or cancel based on your subscription. I'll get a million emails worried about that. So I'm trying to figure out how to make sure nobody's confused by that. Then you'll have the account management page. You can see when your subscription starts, when it ends, etc. However, it really doesn't tell you nothing you don't know. If you know when you signed up, that's when you renew. And I get people, I don't know if I have an active account or not. I logged in, and okay, well, then you have an active account. If you can access everything, your account's in good standing. And if you ever want to know when your account renews and you can't figure it out, Email me, give me your username, and I'll tell you. Please do this for me. If you email me about MSB and you are an existing member, please always give me your username. That makes it very easy to find your account record and get you whatever information you need. All right? Anyway, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. And uh, I, I thought with all the heavy crap we've covered recently, we need something that's lighthearted and fun and enjoyable and pretty universal. There are members of this audience that aren't big on the homesteading, gardening, you know, stuff, but most of this audience is at least interested in it. So I think it's a very universal show. I think homesteading is very universal, and I think, like, there's no need to argue about politics in a show about homesteading. We just don't need it. So let me kind of take you back. Um, many years ago, I can't say exactly when, but it would have been in those Jetta days that, that I mentioned in the, in the, the lead-up to today's show. Back when I was doing the, the podcast in the car, and I quit in the, like January 2010, like January 1st, 2010, or January 2nd, 2010 was the first day I did the show full time, right? When I came back from that Christmas vacation period. So it would have been 2009, 2008, somewhere in there. I did a podcast on homesteading, and I can't find it, but I remember doing it, and I, I'm paraphrasing myself because I remember exactly what I said. But I said well, I was talking about homesteading and modern homesteading and why you should make it part of your life. And it might have been the show, the first one I did called From Home to Homestead. That just came into my brain all of a sudden. But I said something to this effect. The modern homesteading movement is here to stay. Many are comparing it to the quickly, pa quickly passing back to the land movements of the various flavors of the 30s, 50s, and 70s. But this time is different. This time it won't stop. We have, we'll have decades or more of growth behind it. It isn't a fad this time. No, this time it is a return to being human. And I feel the past six to seven years, whatever it is, has proven me right. Homesteading is more popular than ever. In fact, most prepping and survival-minded people today are really at heart simply homesteaders. 
They run the gamut from urban folks making it happen on a tenth of an acre to people returning to large farms and ranches and earning a living with agricultural, agricultural activities or even agro-tourism. How popular is homesteading today? Well, a Google search for the term homesteading brings up 28 million-plus results. A YouTube search for the same term brings up over a quarter million videos. And even with that, the reality is the movement is so much bigger as people who are homesteading are really more likely to look, be looking for content on specific subjects, gardening, canning, aquaponics, plant identification, and dozens of other terms. Entire forums, Facebook pages, etc. are dedicated to the subject, and the movement is attracting people from every political part of the political spectrum, every income level, frankly every race and faith, from devout believer to atheist. As I said, it's a return to being human, something we all need right now. God, we need this. The focus of today's show, though, is with so many interested, the challenges are becoming more evident. Growing up in the 80s, I was a homesteader, but no one called it that. Just like I was a prepper, and no one called it that. Our methods were not the very best, but they worked. And every old-timer knew them and could teach them to young folks. Those of us that would listen anyway, many of us didn't. Today we have more options and choices than ever. It also seems we have more challenges, and that is what we are going to discuss today, those challenges and ways to overcome them. So the thing that made me want to talk about this today was my last two days, really I'd say last night, last evening, last afternoon, and this morning. So my plan yesterday was when I got done with this show, had my farmhand coming. He's going to take care of all the duck pools for two days for me because I had a, sw a flood, flooded swale for him for, for yesterday, and I'd have some freedom. And I wanted to go fishing, but what I was going to do is I'm going to jump in my truck, and there's a couple different boat ramps on this lake that I've been fishing that I haven't been to yet. And, you know, if you get a kind of a tight, not-so-convenient boat ramp, it's not really someplace you want to show up dragging a boat with a quad cab, eight-foot bed truck. So I figured I'd go drive by them and check them out and try to figure out what's the best marina on the lake. And you know, I know this is a first world problem, but I didn't get to go. And the reason I didn't get to go is I went out and did my daily water quality test of all my systems. And I don't walk around with test strips and stuff like that. I occasionally use them. I think they're valuable. But what I do is I look at my fish. I look at the water clarity. And I look at how everything's behaving and how everything's functioning. And in my, my main garden pond system that's composed of the, the metal tanks, I looked in, and what I saw was fish at the surface, breathing air off the surface, and when I threw pellets at them, they didn't want to eat. Red flag. As I checked the rest of the tanks, I noticed the water wasn't crystal clear anymore. It had a little bit of a haze to it. When I checked the, the lines, the, the, the supply lines, bringing the water up to the, the beds, the, the ebb and flow beds at the top of the system that drop into the tanks that create the whole circulation for the system, I noticed they were barely running. And I realized everything was sludged up, and I had bought a brand-new heavier-duty pump with a, a dirty water pump designed to grind crap up. And I had all the fittings I had already purchased to upgrade all of the supply side on the upper-end manifold to one inch from half-inch to, to, to deal with this, and I was going to do it this weekend. And I realized I can't wait. There'll be dead fish in the morning. So I hooked up a garden hose to the lower pump, on the hose bib, cut off the, the supply line to the upside, started dumping water into the swale, making happy ducks, and got out the cutters and completely redid all the manifolds and dumped about half of the water out of the lower pond, so good 200 gallons, 
And by that time, my farmhand was done filling up pools so I could use the full pressure from the well. I filled that back up and took the old pump and made an overflow waterfall. The super amount of oxygen in the water is an emergency step. Got that done, and it was like 7.30. I was covered in sweat. My back hurt, like I said earlier, but it was taken care of. The wife had just gotten home. I came in, took a shower, made fish tacos, and then we took a dip in the pool. Not really a bad day. Got up in the morning, everything looks better, but I know that there's still water quality issues. So this morning I dump about 300 more gallons of water out of the system. This is like a 1,500-gallon system. So at this point I've done maybe a 25% water change. Filled it back up. That occupied a bunch of my morning. And I also had a problem that I won't get into the details of, but out in the greenhouse with the aquaponic system that took some more time to correct. Okay. This is what I came away thinking from that. The people that I talk to every day, most of them cannot dedicate this kind of time just to fixing problems, let alone to installing systems. And I live a different life than most homesteaders because I have a full-time income from a lifestyle business on the Internet, and I do fairly well with it. We have very low to almost no real bills other than the stuff we want. We don't have any debt other than the house. And because of that, and because I can incorporate this into a business and I've done a lot of the install work at workshops and all, I can afford to make mistakes that you guys can't. And I think it's my job to make those mistakes. I think making those mistakes makes me a better teacher. Because I can say, don't do that. Not because I don't think it'll work, because I did that and here's what happens. right? And I think that I have discovered some amazing ways to deal with this landform that I live on that I could never have discovered if I was more conservative and cautious Kind of the way I'm going to talk about you guys should be, most of you anyway, today. But if I had a full-time job, and I worked Monday through Friday, 7 to 5 or something like that, and I had my evenings and my weekends to do this, I would have to take a totally different approach. And that a lot of the problems that folks out there are having and frustrations stem from the fact that you look at people like me and you want to do everything that I'm doing or everything that anybody's, whether it's Erica Strauss from our expert counsel, Nick Ferguson, etc. You're talking about people, this is what we do. This is what we do full time, or we have a lot of time to do it in, even if we don't do it full time. And you're comparing what you're doing part time while trying to manage a family and a job to what we're doing, and it's not a reasonable comparison. And we're also documenting everything we're doing because it's content. And we're putting it out because it's part of our business model. Which means we'll put out stuff that we made mistakes on just because, well, it's more content. But to you, it's like, wow, look at all the stuff they're doing. Well, like, did you realize like half of the stuff I showed you was me screwing up? And I think sometimes, you know, people see the good in what you do and they don't see your mistakes enough. So with all of that in mind, I, I wanted to come at this today from a standpoint of here's how to homestead without making yourself miserable. Here's how to overcome the challenges and do things in a, a conservative way. And I don't mean it politically conservative. I just mean being careful and cautious as you go and not spending too much money and not getting overcommitted to things that you don't really want to do. All right. Before we get into all that, I, I want to talk about why I think homesteading has become so popular and will only get more so. Especially if people take it easy and slow and make it productive and make it cost effective. There's a bunch going on here. Number one, 
because of the way that society is tra changing, I think people inherently know that we're in for some turbulent times economically, and there's going to be less people with full-time jobs. So we need to do something to make up for the lost income, and we can do that with the grocery bill and other things with homesteading, but we also need to do something with the time. It also goes back to my original quote today. I think it's about being human. I think interacting with the earth, cultivating, doing horticulture, so more than agriculture, horticulture, which is working with natural systems, touching the dirt, and knowing where food comes from is an innately human thing. It, it, it wasn't that long ago that unless you were just filthy, disgustingly like Roman emperor rich, you grew some of your own food, and even very wealthy people grew some of their own food. Uh, you, you know, like John Adams was a pig farmer and a regular, like a grain farmer, and used the pig manure to, to provide fertilizer for his grain. And no, he didn't do it with slaves because he was from where? Massachusetts, where they didn't have any of that. He did the work himself. He taught his children this. And yet he was an attorney. And at the time, even at that time, attorneys did well. So even people that were considered upper members of society grew their own food just a couple hundred years ago. And throughout a lot of history, providing some level of a garden in, in whatever space you had or foraging or hunter-gathering was required if you were going to make it. And if you think back to the, like the dawn of civilization, the, or not even the dawn of civilization, the dawn of humanity, we were nothing but hunter-gatherers. It's hardwired in our DNA to do these things. It's hardwired in our DNA. And that's why I think eventually you can only have so much Bluetooth and video game and Netflix and Internet and what have you. And none of those things are bad. And they enable, I think, more of this stuff than ever because there's such an educational component, entertainment, awareness, resources available through all that stuff. But there's a point where you have to say, hey, 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 I am not an electrode. I am a human being. I am flesh and blood. And my senses are the things that really let me experience life. And the smell of the earth or trees or something as simple is the smell of a tomato plant when water hits it on a warm day. They put us in touch with that. And it's not going to go away. It does come with challenges, though. And I've broken it down to what I think are the biggest challenges that people experience getting started or getting being effective with homesteading today. They are land access, government, knowledge, or lack thereof, unreasonable expectations, time, money, and staying motivated from significant results. And I'm going to break down what I think, and it's not the only thing that we can do, about them, but like just four or five major bullet points for each one that will allow us to get through these challenges and think about them more effectively. So let's start out with, I think, one of the biggest ones to getting started, and that's land access. And I think it, it has a lot to do with expectations, which I won't say much about now because we have that as a whole other topic later. But when I talk to somebody who has been looking around online and kind of wants a garden and maybe a couple chickens or something like that, which is very reasonable entry level into permaculture. I, I mean, uh, homesteading, they don't seem too infatuated with needing 50 acres or something like that. 
the more a person has dabbled into the world of permaculture, and specifically instead of like urban permaculture, small-scale design, big systems, swales, tree-based systems, food forest, and who the hell wouldn't want a food forest? I mean, it's, it's the crown jewel of, of everything we're talking about today. But they're the people that seem so, so much like I need this huge piece of land. And I think that we need to kind of grip down on the fact that a half acre can feed you and a family, you know, a, fa a family of four very, very well. Now, it's not going to provide every single calorie you're going to consume, but it probably won't do that if you're on 50 acres either. It probably won't because you're going to want things you don't produce. Now, you can run cattle and maybe lambs and uh, pigs on 50 acres and sell enough of it to probably buy all the rest of your calories. And that's a great way to be more self-sufficient, but it's also a lot more work. So I think the biggest solution is use what you have. If you have anything, use what you have. If you have a suburban lot, then intensive sheet mulching, quality, you know, good quality irrigation on timers, weed blocking techniques, high fertility, high yielding crops. That's what you do because that's what you have. You know, throw throw a couple quail in a cage and now you've got something else going on. You know, and, and learn, learn to do with what you have. If you do not have any land, if you're an apartment dweller, there's no little patch like out. Because I'll tell you what, like sometimes people tell me that. I'm like, I wonder if it really is a problem. And it all depends on the management and what kind of apartment complex it is and whatever. But I remember when I was a kid, we lived in an apartment complex in Jacksonville, Florida. And we had our porch, and then there was like stairs that went up on the back patio to the neighbors upstairs. And there was like this kind of wing there, and it was probably about an eight by eight area. And I was just always a gardener. I mean, I learned from my grandmother on both sides, my grandfather's on both sides. So I started grabbing leaves and stuff like that, whatever I could get from the, there was woods all around. And I just mulched it, you know, and I, I, and I didn't really even do anything for fertility. And since it had never really been cropped, it didn't need much. And I started growing food right there. I planted, I mean, I remember I planted like green beans and they did real good. I planted popcorn. I did carrots and with the sandy soil in Jacksonville, they did great. You know, and I wasn't a lot, but it was something. So like when you say you don't have any access to land for growing any food, a lot of times you can find something. But even if you can, I think then, then that's where you start incorporating more of the hunter gatherer mindset until you have land. Fishing, hunting, And, and, and gathering, wild foraging, stuff. Like, just, just focus on that. And that'll give you something to do that doesn't cost any money so that you can save money and invest so that you can one day buy a property and actually have access to land. And that kind of takes me to the next step with this is be patient and do the work. I've been to a lot, especially the permaculture workshops, right? And you get in there, and it's a big, wide swath of ages. And there's usually some really young people there. And I find that incredibly encouraging, by the way, to see kids at 21, 22, some of them 18, 19. Well, the only thing I was doing at that age, especially once I was out of the military, or probably even when I was in it, is chasing girls. I mean, I was a bar chase girls. Maybe go fishing once a week. That was it. Right? To see people at that age group that are, 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 are concerned about this stuff, And they're coming to these classes and spending their time and money to learn is great. But I find them to be so impatient. 
You're talking to some kid that's like 21 years old or 18 years old, and they're lamenting that they don't own land. Not many people at that age do. It's not like you're entitled to it. And I'm, I'm speaking kind of that, not to the rest of the science, but kind of that demographic right now. Like, you know, be patient and do the work. Save the money. Work hard. Live below your means. Save up so that you can afford that down payment and then shop smart and buy smart, negotiate hard, and get yourself a new, you know, some level of property. And I'm going to bring that back to a half acre can feed your family probably more than you can ever fully utilize it. If you, if you intensively manage a half of an acre, an acre will wear you out. Three acres will spin your head around, and five acres, you probably won't walk on parts of your property except a couple times a year unless you're doing actual kind of mainstream agricultural things or grazing or something like that. And even then, you may not. But you can produce a hell of a lot from a quarter acre. Just a tremendous amount of production. So it might be that the best path forward for you as a homesteader, especially if you're going to be working a full-time job, is a smaller property because it's easier to manage intensively and it's easier to maintain. It's easier to automate. It's easier to do so many things with. So with the land access thing, there is a point where, yeah, you got to, if you want to do a lot of this stuff, you got to gain access to property. But then there's even other options. Like, So let's say that you don't really have access to, to land, but do people around you garden? What if you became the canning, the canning person? And what you did is, like, I'll take your green beans and I'll can them, and for every five cans, I keep one. <laughs> Then you're learning that skill so that when you do have land, you know how to do it. And you're taking the landowner that has this patch of beans that really just doesn't have time to add that to their busy life, and you're taking that off their table and you're helping them preserve their food. If you get good at it, maybe you can do classes for people, and even though you don't have land, other people do. There's always ways to start expanding the skill set in advance because it's really hard to learn canning when you're trying to keep your garden going toward the end of the season. You see what I'm saying? So if you already know how to do that, when you put your first garden in, that's one thing that's off the table. So just that kind of mindset with access would be very helpful. The next one is government. Government is the most insidious restriction on us, but it exists. So today I'm not going to sit around and bitch about it. I'm going to tell you what you do about it. Number one, first and foremost, design around the restrictions. I'm also going to say avoid areas with high regulation in just a second, but I'm also going to accept the fact that not everybody can, and there are inherent restrictions no matter what you do. And then there's inherent requirements and needs of a family. If dad and mom have a job somewhere downtown, wherever you live, whatever that means, because downtown means a hell of a lot different here than it does on the Dallas side of the Metroplex. Those are totally different things. Yeah, they're both, but they're different places, right? And then downtown where I grew up, that was Minersville. Yeah, downtown, because I'm from Pottsville, but I mean, I really grew up in Minersville. And Minersville is like one street with some shops and bars on it. And there's like, back in the day, there was like, I don't know, four or five thousand people in Minersville proper, but it was downtown. Downtown, right? So whatever that means for you, mom and dad live downtown. Well, how far from down or work, work downtown? How far from downtown can you live and not hate your life with your commute every day? 
And maybe the jobs that you have don't really have a lot of opportunities outside of something like that. So you, you, at some point where you go, yeah, I'm going to be stuck in suburbia. It doesn't have to be miserable. So, you know, avoid the HOAs at that point. Look for the bigger pieces of land. A lot of times older housing that's been well-maintained. People are a little bit more set in their ways there. They're a little bit more remembered when people garden. It's a little bit less of an issue. Um, but definitely do your research and avoid as much of the regulation as you can. But design around your restrictions. Understand your restrictions and be clever. Be clever about how you put systems in. And be creative on how you cheat the system. So I think one of the most useful homestead animals, and I'm happy to have them back in my life, even though they're four little bitty birds, are chickens. I love my quail, and we're going to talk about quail a little bit today too. And quail do a pretty good job composting, but chickens do an amazing job composting. So one way that you can often design around restrictions is, well, people say, well, you can't have chickens here. You can't have chickens here that they know about. And there are ways you can design like coop and run type systems, which is honestly the best thing in suburbia. I know everybody wants to pasture their chickens and have them running around. But you know what? Having chickens in a coop and run environment is pretty happy chickens. I have four little chickens, and they're in with a bunch of quail in my aviary system. And basically it's a giant run. And their coop is a little plastic thing they hide in. Those four chickens are happy. They don't know what they're missing. They really don't. And they don't seem like they, they feel that they're missing much at all. I go in there and I call they, they come up to me, they're like pets now. The one little golden lace white in it, I can pick her up and hold her. She purrs when I pet her. They're happy birds. They're in the dirt. They're and they and we have these these big plastic tubs and we throw all the stuff for composting in there, and they do a great job of processing that, and that's high fertility. You know, so what does that mean about being creative and how you cheat? Well, instead of making a big shit to do about it and feeling like you have to have full-size chickens, you get some nice, quiet little bantams, which is what I have. You build a nice little hidden area for them, and you just put your chickens there and shut your mouth. You just don't talk about it. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's one way to do that. You know, or use quail instead of chickens is another way to do that, because a lot of times they don't count. There's always, and I'm not going to go through like a hundred things, but there's always creative ways to cheat. And You know, I have a friend, he says, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And I think in this instance, it's absolutely true. Um, and definitely, yeah, try to avoid the high regulation areas. Try to find, what you do is you make, like, here's the area we can live in. Of that, here's the area we would be okay living in. And of that area, here's the area with the least amount of intrusion. You go there, and then you get creative about cheating. And you get creative about designing around restrictions. You do what you can instead of worry about what you can't do. All right? Um, and the last on that, I would say, well, yes, you should work to change regulations. There's been a lot of people recently that have gotten restrictions on chickens, for instance, lifted. And usually the town will say something like you can have up to four, up to six, and they can only be hens and whatever. And that's fine. You don't need a rooster. You know, you really don't. And... What you're talking about is a working animal that produces eggs as a byproduct, to me, on the urban scale. You want meat, you go rabbits or quail. All right, next up is knowledge. Knowledge is the least difficult impediment because there's so much information, but it can become the most difficult impediment because there's so much information. 
And it's also something that I've learned over the years that knowledge doesn't always transfer from one region or area or biome to another very well. When I was a young guy and I just started gardening again, we were living in Pennsylvania. I kind of left all this stuff. When I got back from the Army and I came here to Texas, I worked on building a career. I did a little bit of planting of some trees and stuff like that. We had, there's, there's a pecan tree right now at the house that I, first house I ever owned that's, you couldn't get your arms around it that I planted, for instance, you know. Um, but I, I really kind of just left it. And I've told this before, but it, it's 9-11 was like this come to Jesus moment for me. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing, Jack? And while I didn't, you know, completely change my life yet, And I still stayed on the road in, in corporate sales for another four years um, and moved to marketing. And guys, kind of know the rest of the story if you've been around a while. But uh, I did change the way I was handling my life. And I came home when I got, when I finally got, because I got stuck in Pittsburgh. When I got back to our place near Allentown, I did two things that week. One was my son and I built a fire pit. There was some leftover bricks from when they had built the house in the 70s. We built a huge fire pit. It was really easy. We dug a hole and we put the bricks around it, like three layers and double stacked. It was kind of cool looking. And I put a garden in. I put it in an eight by eight square garden. And I just started planting. And I watered and I planted. And I didn't do much else. Threw some mulch down. And I grew the shit out of food. I had food coming out of my ears. And then that was a fall garden in Pennsylvania, which you don't get much time. When we went into that next spring, holy crap. There was food at an 8 by 8, 64 square feet. There was food galore. And I, it was easy. You know why? It was Pennsylvania farmland. It rains there all the time, all by itself. The soil is fertile. And as long as you don't damage it, it stays fertile. As long as you do something to, to, to hold and increase fertility, it's great. We moved back to Texas. It took a while for me to become a good gardener down here. And I was in a much more forgiving environment than I am in now, as far as like rock and, and what have you. This is just a horrible, masochistic place to homestead, but yet we do it, right? And so the problem with knowledge is a lot of times... You watch somebody do something and you think, well, I'm going to do that too, but they're in a northwestern climate on the, uh, on the western side of the Cascades where not only does it rain a lot, but just the mist that comes in every night is enough to water the ground. And if you're in northwestern Alabama in a drought, that shit doesn't work there. So you, you got to be careful with how you use the internet. You have to use the internet what I call intelligently. And that usually involves like watching what everybody does and then figuring out what will work best for you. And the other thing I think you need to do is you need to design a system four ways before you commit to it. This isn't every system. Like if you're just going to put some garden beds in and you want to do plain old square gardens, you know, and line them over your fence or whatever, which everybody does, you can do that. It's probably going to be okay. At least think about solar aspect. You know, so that you're not shading out your own plants with your taller plants. To put a little bit of intelligence in the design, but you can just do it. But in general, it's kind of like the question I answered yesterday on an aquaponic system in a in a 12 by 11 room. I would sit down with pen and paper and I would design it, and I would specifically make myself design it four different ways. And then I would lay those designs out, and I would say, 
What are the best features of each one? Now, this is not analysis paralysis. I mean, you do this fairly quickly. I put this here and there and that. But then you start to see the errors. Like, why does this one work better than this one? Oh, that's because of this. And, okay, well, actually, I like this one better, but I can fix that. And it, it just lets you kind of really evaluate, do I really want to do this? Because what you're going to be doing is spending time and money and resources and energy. And we have a tendency to not understand financial literacy in this country. And the problem is financial literacy, if we do have it, translates elsewhere. So I'm going to give you a financial literary term today, a word that we should all understand if we're going to be entrepreneurs, but we need to understand in our lives as well. It's called sunken cost or sunk cost. What is a sunken cost? A sunken cost is a, a cost that you've expended that cannot be recovered. And therefore, it cannot be considered in the next decision in the process. So you hear people with a misunderstanding of sunken cost all the time. They want to sell a car that they put work into and maybe painted and, and made to look nice and maybe souped up a bit or something. And they'll ask, you know, the guy, the guy will say, well, what do you want for it? And they'll tell him, the best I can do on that car is $8,000. And the guy will say, I can't do it. I got more than that into it. That's irrelevant. That's a sunken cost. That money cannot be recovered. The vehicle now has a market value. The sunken cost is gone. What you, to, to the buyer, what you have into it doesn't mean shit because if we're looking at market value and you don't want to sell yours for that because you have some sort of mental impediment to it, I will just go buy the same thing from somewhere else because nothing is as rare as you think it is. Market value exists for a reason. Well, in homesteading, the way that hurts us is we make things that aren't type 1 errors that we mentally codify as type 1 errors. Like we, we put a garden in the wrong spot, and we know it's the wrong spot. And what we need to do is tear it out and move it, but we won't because I put all that work and effort and money into it. Well, you can't recover that. But what you can do is if it's a raised bed built out of, like, timbers, is you probably pull them up and move them. And you can probably move most of the fill, and then you can probably clean that area up, throw some grass seed or whatever it is down, let that area recover, and, yeah, it'll take some time and maybe some money. You'll have to maybe buy some new components or parts or things to fix it. But that's the right decision. But because you've acted as if you've put a pond in that's 20 feet deep, it can't be fixed. Or if you've made a mistake and it is going to cost you money to fix it, you worry about the money you've already spent versus does this thing do what it's supposed to do? Now, you have to balance that with another bit of financial IQ, which is you don't throw good money after bad. So you don't just keep spending more money. But if the system's wrong and it takes time and energy and money to fix it, you're usually better off fixing it or abandoning it and doing something else. Clean it up, do something else, depending on what it is. But when you design a system four ways before you actually commit to it, you have less of those moments. I think another big thing is you need to start with only one or two things and get them working well. Not optimally, but well. Well enough that you could live with it the way that it is before you do five other things at the same time. This is why I say, like, just let's use gardening for an example. 
you're going to put in your first garden beds for a fall garden. Great time to do that right now for most of the country. So you're going to go out and make a good soil mix. You're going to put your raised beds in. You're going to put your drip irrigation, your weed blocking, your mulch, whatever it is. You're going to go build that right now. What do people want to do? I want to start my own plants. No. Find a nursery that has plants for fall gardens. Buy your plants. Put them in the ground. I want to make my own compost. No. Go buy some compost. Go buy some good organic fertility aids, fertilizer, Garrett juice, Dr. Earth Gold, whatever the hell it is. Cheat, use fertility that somebody else made, and get the freaking lettuce and the freaking squash and whatever the hell else you're going. Get it to freaking grow. Grow it, be happy about it, cut it off the vine, and freaking eat it. And be satisfied with that for your first effort. Why? Because making compost is another skill. Planting plants from seed, unless it's a direct, like direct sow stuff, throw it in the ground and, and let it grow. But when it comes to like starting little tiny plants and transfer, all of that's another skill. All that's another skill. You know, doing drip irrigation, that's another skill. So, hey, get yourself some freaking cheap sprinklers, stick them out there, run a hose across the ground, turn them on with a little $10 freaking orbit timer, and, and water your plants once a day. And then worry about installing drip irrigation next year or in the off-season. Right? If you have time to do drip irrigation, okay, go ahead and do that. But don't even worry about planting that until you get it in place. Take these things and take them and break them down. And then get that system tuned to where... I know it takes me 15 minutes a day to maintain this system, and I know I have at maximum an hour a day to dedicate to these activities, so I now have 45 minutes left. If I'm going to do something else, I have to think about how it gets done in that 45 minutes a day. If it ain't have to be done every day, how, many, how much does it take a week, and how does that get aggregated out? Because it's amazing. You hear people talk about all the shit they want to do, and you go, well, do you have eight hours a day to dedicate to this? No. Well, that's what it's going to take. Especially if you're trying to do it all from the start at the same time. A lot of times stuff that takes a lot of time only takes a lot of time until that system's in play. And then you learn how that works. So you learn that, hey, I have to work my ass off with my garden for the first three weeks, four weeks of the year. But then I don't have to do much other than harvest and weeding, and that only really takes me five minutes a day if I do it every day. For most of the season, until I get toward the end, I'm converting over to fall. Then I have to work my ass off for about a week and a half. And then I'm back to the same mode. And then, by the time Thanksgiving or Christmas comes around, I'm going to throw down a big layer of mulch or a cover crop, and I'm not doing shit till spring. So then you say, well, there's, see, then you start figuring out. But if you, if you try to do a bunch of shit at the same time, you never do anything right. And it all seems very hard. It gets very, very frustrating. So don't do that. One or two things at a time. Um, next, if you do nothing else with permaculture, because I talk to a lot of people, they want to do a garden, they want to have birds or whatever, but they're like, I don't want to get, I don't want to do a PDC, I don't want to get into all this food forestry stuff, I don't have time for it, I don't get it, I don't have space for it, whatever it is, it's just not me. I think it's hippie shit, whatever, I don't care, you know. But if you do nothing with permaculture else, learn zone thinking. So zone thinking is, permaculture, we say zone zero is inside of your house. People usually leave that out, but it's actually important. Zone one, 
is when you walk out your door, front or back, you're standing in zone one right now. And if you think about your natural activities on your property, the, the best basis to start out with your zone one is places that you step foot on every day just in your natural activities on your property. And there's actually five main zones, well, actually six because it's zone zero, in permaculture thinking with large-scale design. But in an urban design, we usually think kind of a one, two, three, and that's enough. So zone one, I'm on that piece of property for at least a couple seconds every single, single day. Zone two, through my natural activities, I touch that piece of dirt a couple times a week. And zone three, you know, maybe it's once a week when I mow the grass, so I have to get in the back corner, right? Or when I walk back to talk to the neighbor on Saturday afternoons, I'm back in that corner. Otherwise, I'm not really there very often. Why is this important? We need to design our systems around those zones. And a vegetable garden, I don't care how many times you've seen it on the back fence, does not belong in zone three. It belongs in zone one. The only reason it doesn't belong in zone one is because the house shades out the spot or it's just not phys you know, just not possible. It has to go further back. And if we put it back there, then we design a path to there, okay, like a peninsula. It becomes a zone one peninsula. And we, we, we create things that need to be taken care of along that path. Like we put our compost along that path. So we go out to our garden We pull up weeds and do harvest and cut off kind of dead growth. We are on the way back with our food, and we have all that excess stuff, and we throw it in the compost bin. Or there's a composting area your chickens have access to, and it goes in there. Or the chicken run is right next to the garden, and you open the, the little window you created for yourself, and you throw that shit in there. So that it's all easy. So that we don't have to go out to the back fence to take care of the garden with no pathway established and no thought around it. And then the chickens are way over here. And I have to go feed the chickens. And I have to go to the garden and I'm tired and I got home late today and the boss yelled at me. And the chickens will die if I don't feed them. The garden will be okay till tomorrow. And that goes on for a week. The garden's overrun with weeds. The chickens have not had any chance to process those weeds, and you're not making compost passively, and it all sucks. If they're together, well, since I have to go feed the chicken, the quail, whatever, the rabbits anyway, then I'm going to be right there. And you'd think with a modern, you know, suburban lot where, like, you can literally, you know, spit and hit the other corner, it wouldn't be a big deal, but it ends up being a big deal. So you think in these zones. You think in these zones. And that's, if you take nothing from permaculture else, you do that. The next big hurdle, I think, or challenge for modern homesteading is unreasonable expectations. I, I, I don't get as much of it as I used to. I think it's because the show has matured more, and a lot of the audience has been around a while, and they've learned the philosophy that I teach. And the movement's matured more. And people are a lot more likely to have seen, you know, the YouTube channel of the two homesteaders who effed everything up for the first five years and finally got their shit together. So they kind of know, like, okay, this is how this works. Because what happened was, you know, nine years ago, YouTube wasn't brand new, but it was relatively new for, you know, everybody and their mother setting up a channel. So the people that were screwing everything up didn't put up any content. And the people that had established system put up content of their established systems. 
And there wasn't really these journeys where you're going through it with a couple or a person and watch them screw everything up. So people just saw, like, Tom does this, and Betty does that, and Jimmy does this, so that's all easy. So I'm going to do all that, and I am going to be just awesome right out of the gate. And you didn't realize that Tom, Betty, and Jimmy all screwed up what they did, and none of them do all of that. Each of them have a specialty. And I think there's more awareness of that now. But to, to call this one back, you need to start with a modest goal. I hear a lot of people, I'll do 50% of my own calories. You know what? You can do that. On a suburban lot, you can produce 50% of the food that you eat. Maybe not even calories, but the food. Total volume, no problem. Absolutely, you can do that. You ain't going to do it in year one. And between zero and 50, 49 little other opportunities in there are called numbers. So why don't we start with something nice and round and easy to obtain, like 10%. Because we can do that, and when I get into like staying motivated, I'll give you some ways to do that really, really fast. Like almost within three weeks to be there. And definitely to be there within like seven to eight weeks. I'm sitting dead serious. Without spending a lot a ton of money, and immediately once it starts producing to save money. Okay? So start with like a ten percent goal. And people say what happens is again, we're not patient. We don't have an understanding of how powerful that is, of how powerful that really is. Because what we can do is, yeah, we'll spend some money and some materials and energy to get to 10%, but then our cost of maintaining that's very low to almost nothing. So it's, like, well, it's only 10%. Okay, we're not trying to survive the apocalypse, folks. We're trying to stage our way into being modern homesteaders. But do you know what the average annual household food cost is? It's about 6600 bucks. In America, people, the average family spends about $6,600 a year on groceries. And 10% of that is $660. Now, if you could create a system in your home that would spit out $2 a day, every day, all year long, would you think it was worth doing? Now, if you it only gave you $2, you'd be like, well, no. But if it gave you $2 every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, which is roughly about $660, you'd think it was pretty cool. If it took you eight weeks to build it, you know, and not working 24 hours a day doing it either, but a little bit here and a little bit there, and you learned some things along the way, and then this was just going to be a machine that just gave you $2 a day, it might not let you retire, but... It'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? And then you might say to yourself, self, you know what? I think I can build another one of those. And all of a sudden, it's, it's $4 a day. And if you could do it two more times, $8 a day. And one more time is 10 And that would be about half. And it's 50% is doable. But you got to get to 10% to get to 50%. Now what we're talking about is about $3,150 a year that you're not spending on food anymore. And for many people, it's going to be much higher. And by the time you get to there, you're cutting the cost by $3,100, $3,200, $3,300, right? $3,300, right? 
So you cut the cost by $3,300. But you're not replacing it with $3,300 worth of food. You're now eating high-end, gourmet, beyond organic, nutrient-dense food that would cost you probably $10,000 to buy. Plus the other $3,300 you're still selling. So now you are eating like you're spending thirteen grand a year by spending three and some time and effort. But you have to phase it in or you will never, ever, ever, infinity, get there. Okay? That's what unreasonable expectations will do to you. They will ruin that opportunity. And that's just one opportunity from homesteading. So that takes me to the next one. Be, and I've said it so many times today, be patient. Be patient. You'll get better with time. There is probably nothing you've ever done in your life, with a few exceptions of natural talent, that you're just good at. That you just did it and it worked. Like almost everything you're good at, you had to suck at first. You know, I've met like two people in my life that picked up a guitar the first time and went, oh, I get it. And they're jamming, right? One or two people. In, in my whole life, I meant that they said so that's how it was for them. Most people had to have their fingers bleeding and be ready to throw the damn thing in the trash before finally one day it kind of clicked and they started to not suck so bad. And then they started to string things together. But we expect that we're going to go out and we're going to learn how to garden, we're going to learn how to do aquaponics, we're going to do animal husbandry, we're going to be a great cook, we're going to be able to preserve food, and we're going to do all of that in three months. It's not going to happen. Oh, and by the way, we are going to do. We're going to produce 100% of our own food. It's just insane. It's just not the way the real world works. So be patient and allow yourself to take these individual walks with individual one or two skill sets or one or two systems and get them into operational mode. You start using them to your benefit, and then optimize them to some degree, so that they take the minimal amount of time and effort to maintain, then do one more, and then do one more, and be patient. Don't be hard on yourself when you have failures. Because, guys, I failed my ass off, all right? So if I'm going to fail my ass off, you're going to fail your ass off too, all right? And again, forget about being completely self-sufficient. Just just forget about it. Like, if it ever happens, be like, woohoo! Like, it's like the lottery, all right? Like, you don't sit around going, man... Tomorrow I'm going to win the lottery and everything's going to be fine. You're like, I don't play the lottery, right? But if I did, I'd be like, well, it's just I just threw away two bucks, right? And if I win, great. But otherwise, I'm not betting anything in my life on that, right? So that's how you have to take the 100% self-sufficiency or even 80% self-sufficiency. If you can be 50% self-sufficient for your food, you are banging. And, and, and I'll tell you what. Other things are going to happen because of that that you really won't understand until you do. So just let go of the 100% goal. Um, next, make the journey enjoyable. If you're miserable, you're doing it wrong. If you've set something up and you really hate it, not just because you, you, know, like you haven't figured it out yet, but you have figured it out. It is doing what it's supposed to do. But you just hate it, quit. Do something else. Do nothing for a couple weeks. Clean it up, get rid of it, put it on the shelf, whatever you got to do to make the problem go away. Don't do anything for a couple weeks. And then ask yourself, what do I want to do now? 
Because doing something that makes you miserable is not what this is about. This is not Little House on the Prairie. We are not going to starve if the corn doesn't get come, come in. That is not the world we live in, and we should not treat it that way. This should be enjoyable. It should be fun. It should get you outside. It should give you exercise. It should make you feel good. It should make you feel alive. You should look forward to doing it. When you're coming home from work and you had a shitty day at work, you should be saying to yourself, I can't wait to get out in my yard. Not, oh, damn, I got to get out in my yard. If that's how you feel, you either need to change what you're doing or change how you're doing it. Because eventually you're going to end up quitting everything. And that's the worst possible outcome. Then you become one of these you know, angry people that when you tell them you have a garden, they yell at you. I don't know what the hell's wrong. It, it's weird. I've met people like that. I used to have a garden. It sucked. Like, just chill the hell out, dude. All right? We've all met them, right? So, yeah, definitely. Um, if, you, if you're not enjoying it, you're doing it wrong. Change what you're doing or how you're doing it. Next is time. Again, back to permaculture zones. Think in zones. When you zone things out, you have a system in place you are able to get a lot more done a lot quicker. And a lot of times I find that people aren't even working as long or as much as they think they are. It just feels like it because it's so disjointed. So get into that zone routine. Zone routine. And routine is a great thing to have in your life. People that have routines in their life, they stay healthier longer in life. They live longer. They recover from illness better. They're happier, more enjoyable people. So it... It does a lot more than just make your home setting more effective. Also, use automation. Um, we're going to have some major cool things coming at the fall workshop for automation. And I think a lot of people think, well, automation takes too much time. No, not automating takes too much time. Doing, you got to think about it like putting your garden bed in. See, this is kind of rolling back a second. This is why people feel like gardening is so much work. They put a garden in and plant a garden and maintain a garden, and try to grow their own plants, produce their own compost, all in the first season. Well, you don't have to ever put the garden in again, do you? Not if you do it right. And if we skip the plant, see what I'm saying? Like we skip starting our own plants, and we skip making compost, or we're going to make compost that first year, but we're not going to use it till the next year. We do it very, very passive. We're not going to be out there turning it every three days or anything like that. Let the chickens do it, or we'll just make, throw it in a big pile. It'll be all right. It'll happen by the next year. It'll be okay. All of a sudden, it gets a lot easier, but it takes the work to get the systems built. That's how automation is. It's a pain in the ass sometimes, setting timers and doing this and figuring out how to do this and what you really want it to do. But once it's done, now it's less work. you got to think about automation like training an employee, something I always struggled with. It was always hard for me when I was running a regular business and I needed something done and I could do it in 30 minutes and it would take me four hours, four days in a row, okay, of teaching a person to do it over and over and over again. 16 freaking hours, four days, two hours of work. But what was my ROI on it as long as that employee worked out and stuck around? How long did it take me till I was ahead because I never had to do it again? Eight days. Eight days into it, I was ahead, and every single day I was getting that 30 minutes back. I'd have to touch it. That's automation. 
It might take you 20 hours to fully set up a system that's completely automated. But if it saves you 30 minutes a day, it only takes you 10 days of not having to do that 30 minutes a day, and it doesn't pay for itself. And what really sucks is during those 20 hours, you're having to do all of the stuff for the automation, plus all the stuff is not automated yet. So it seems like so much freaking work, but once it's done, it's done. And now you know how to do it. So now when you do your next project, you design it from the beginning with automation, and you don't even start working on it till the automation's in so that you don't have to do anything except pick the shit up or whatever it is or harvest it or what have you. And you can't automate everything, but you should automate everything that you can. There's a jackism. You can't automate everything, but you should automate everything that you can. So use automation. Um, definitely with time management, I've kind of said this already, but perfect a system before adding another one. There is nothing that will screw your time up more than have two systems that aren't quite working at the same time. They won't be, like, so a system, let's say, is two times the work before it's perfected than it is while you're figuring out what to do with it. So you'd think, well, if I have two systems that are two times the work, it'll be four times the work. It'll be more like 16, or at least it'll feel that way. Then you get frustrated, then you put off things you should do, do something else, get another thing going, and next thing you know, everything's a mess. I've struggled this with myself because I have ADD, right? but at least I know better. right? Next, design into your system seasonal breaks. We have seasonal breaks in our system. So an example of that is... So right now, I have to take care of turkeys. Okay, They're not a lot of work to kind of hang out with the ducks and all, but there's extra concerns within it. And for the first eight weeks, when they're poults, they're a lot of work. They're by themselves. They're in a chicken tractor, etc. So I have ducks that come in every year. So I design my schedule so the ducks come in very early in the year. They get up to about eight weeks of age. They're paired into the existing flock, and now they're no extra work. Then the turkeys show up. I do not have the turkeys and the ducks coming in at the same time. They can't be raised together. That would be two things. So I put a seasonal time budget in with no overlap. And there's a couple weeks when there's no ducks and no turkeys, and I can go, just my regular routine. Thanksgiving-ish Time comes, early November. The people that are buying turkeys come and get the turkeys. I take the turkeys I'm keeping, keep, keeping for myself to the processor. They get vacuum sealed and put in the freezer. No more turkeys. All through the winter. No turkeys to worry about. And that's just one example of how we stage things out. And I don't bring in a fall group of ducks. Like, so... Right now, we're already moving toward a more relaxed period. By the time we get into September, we're way into relaxed period. I don't have to worry about any extra watering. Everything's good. You know, the heat's, it's still hot, but it's this miserable heat's broken. The trees aren't going to die. They're getting ready to go dormant anyway. Everything's easier. I can plan my workshop. This is how we design a time budget based on seasonal breaks. Okay. Um, next up, money. Just did budget, so let's talk about money. So, first off, money. I have a rule with money. 
This is my rule with money, unless you have all the things you want in your life right now. Make more, save more, spend less. Okay? Going into homesteading is not a reason to start spending more money. If you want to spend money on homesteading, you have to set a budget and stick to it. That's another one. Set and stick to a budget. So you set that out over here, but then we still take our regular budget and go, what do I cut? What do I cut? Or how do I earn more? And you got to do one or the other if you want more than you have. You can fix the income side or the spending side. A lot of times, there's wasteful spending. But people are generally pretty good whenever they realize I really don't have what I want in my life. It's sitting down and, and, and figuring out what is my wasteful spending and, and curtailing it. People are usually pretty good on that. Usually. But then they'll, they'll shop around for like, if you live in a state like Texas where the electric bill, you, you pick your own electric company, there's like 10 of them. Uh, they'll shop around for hours to save one penny a kilowatt. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But then I'll have really wasteful spending over here that would make a much bigger impact that they could fix right away. But still, in general. But what people generally aren't great at is, is, is making more. Making more and saving more. Because a lot of times it's not even, it's not hard cost that's the spending problem. It's recreational spending. Right? It, it's, it, it's just your, you know, people call it disposable income. It's not really all that disposable, you know? It's emotional spending. You know, that, those are the ones you need to put the curtail on. Um, but the place people are really the worst at, I think, is not making more. They don't start looking, what is the side hustle I could run? What is the business I could start? Can I just get some overtime? Can I take a second job? Doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I worked three jobs. One of them was full-time. One of them was full-time and two were contract. They were all the same thing. They were all in cabling, computers, cable TV, stuff like that. But I had two different companies that I worked part-time for, that I'd say, like, if you have work, here's my availability this week. I'd go out and do installs for, for cable TV companies. I'd go build a head end. You know, I'd go pull some cabling into a computer room. I, it didn't matter to me where the work was coming from, and it sucked that, no, I wasn't making overtime on it because it wasn't added to my current job, but I didn't have any overtime available, so I just took more work. And, I mean, there were a lot of weeks I worked, like, 80 hours plus like that. But I don't do it today. And I never planned on doing it forever. It was, I'm doing this to get my new family into a home. And I'll find a better career, but I'm not going to wait for the better career to start building up the cash reserve so we can have a home. And that's what it takes sometimes. Make more. And then I think another thing, and a lot of you guys are really good at this. I'm impressed with some of the stuff I get in emails from people. Look what I got. Become a scavenger and adept scavenger. Craigslist for the win, man. Uh, some of the things I pay people get for free, for no money, for very little money on Craigslist, and build incredibly cool systems with. Um, I've had people tell me, well, you put all those expensive stock tanks in. I'm like, do you know how many stock tanks you can get for next to nothing on Craigslist? Including the Rubbermaid ones? Seriously, that one has a hole in it. It's rubber made. You can fix the hole. It's not hard. You know, fish tanks, glass windows, lumber, pallets, 
old fencing. I mean, I have seen so much shit on Craigslist. Now, you got to be careful. <laughs> I, I told my farmhand yesterday that when I get older, one of my retirement projects is I'm going to write a book called The Extreme Joy of Being a Junk Man, right? And I'm going to dedicate it to my grandfather because he was a junk man like no other junk man I ever knew. He was a hoarder before they called it hoarding. Um, so you got to be careful you don't go too far down that. But, you know, and i tell you how you do that. You come up with a project, you, you think of all the things you're going to need for it, and then you scavenge those things and you implement that project. Where people get in trouble with it is they just keep scouring Craigslist and go, I can do something with that, I can do something with that someday, I can do something with that someday. And they have all this shit stacked up, and none of it fits together to make one thing. And you're not even really sure what you're going to do with it, but it seems like such an opportunity I got to do it. Somebody's always throwing away old shit that they don't know what to do with. Pick a project, get as much as you can from scavenging, and then buy what you can't. That's the way to maximize scavenging. Think maximum ROI starting out. Try to do things that put money back into your pocket fast. I'll, I'll save that for my staying motivated section coming up here at the end. But try to think about things that have a quick payback and do those first. Because then that starts to offset your other expenses and that frees up money to invest in things that take a little longer to give you a return. Okay? Um, and try to make some of your hobbies pay for themselves. I mean, when I found out that there's yuppies out there, I don't have a better word for them, but people that are have more money than brains that would give me $50 for a really big comic goldfish, it's like, shut up. That turns out they'll do it. Especially if you get one with like a bunch of different colors, a big fantail on them. So I go buy a, a bunch of 16-cent goldfish. I throw them in my tank. I'm in like eight bucks. And like two or three years later, I pull one of them out. No, half of them are dead, but half of them are still alive. And I put a picture on Craigslist, and a yuppie will buy this big, beautiful fish for $50. And he just paid for all the feed that those fish ate, plus all the other fish in there with them for a year. Well, shit. Well, that's pretty cool. My buddy David has these finches. I think they're like Godiva finches or finches or something like that. They sell for like 100 bucks a piece. But he has an aviary with quail, kind of a, a different style of what I'm doing. It's like partly in the house, partly outside, tropical plants in it, quail run all around on it, little poison dart frogs and shit living in there. But he's got these Godiva finches. Well, they have a clutch... You end up with like six babies that grow up, and they're $100, $600. So he's not trying to sell microgreens at the farmer's market. How many microgreens at the farmer's market you got to sell to make $600? This bird is born, and the other bird takes care of it, and you just sell it to yuppies. Those are just some examples. Try to look for some ways that your hobbies can pay for themselves. Again, being the canning person would be one of those. You know, Especially if you get good at it and can do lots of it fast. Lots of different ways you can do that. Um, so let's come to, I think, what might be maybe the most important segment. That's why I saved it for last, staying motivated. And next to staying motivated, in my notes, I have in parentheses, significant results. Because significant results are what creates motivation. When, when I do get, hear from people that aren't frustrated but rather motivated, it's usually like they have their garden in, they did it right, they stuck to that one thing, they focused on fertility, They provided good irrigation. They kept the weeds down. They kept the mulch up. They get a big harvest. They send me their flipping happy. 
look at all this food. Tonight we had dinner. And I mean, just half of your shit. Because that's what it's all about. Like, if you didn't get any results from this, why would you do it? So if we do some things in the very beginning that have maximum return of investment and fast results, we get really motivated. I think one of the best things you can do is microgreens. Microgreens, I mean, 14 days. You can do them in the right climate. You can do them outside. You can do them slightly shaded, and, and they'll do really well. you got to make sure they stay wet. You don't want them to get too dried out because it'll just kill them dead. You can do them under a freaking fluorescent light in your garage or an extra bedroom. But in 14 days, you're eating. And I think the easiest and kind of the gateway microgreen is sunflowers, black oil sunflower. And it's amazing how much a like, you know, a, a, a 10 by 18 shallow tray of sunflower microgreens actually produces. It doesn't look that much until you cut it and you wash it and you put it in a, holy crap. And that can be done in gardens or it can be done in container gardens outside through most of the year. And that's as easy as you take black oil sunflower, you soak it in water overnight, you lay it out in a, a, a layer, you put something on top of it till it starts to sprout, you take that off of it and you let it grow for a few days until it's a couple inches tall before it puts on any true leaves and you cut it with a sharp knife. And then you, if you, even if you're buying the rest of your salad shit, you put that on top of it. When you put your dinner together that night, you take a little, you take a handful of that and put it on each plate. Drizzle a little dressing on it, maybe crumble a little crispy bacon on, on that and have that with your meal. And if you add some other microgreens in it, arugula is a great one, things like that, it's fast. All of a sudden you're eating a supercharged food. It tastes really good. And you got results in a couple weeks. How long does it take to pick that first tomato? I'm not saying not to plant the first tomato. I'm just saying maybe we want to start out with something like microgreens and baby greens. You know, we can, instead of, you know, starting six spinach plants in a six flat, we take a bunch of spinach, a bunch of lettuce, a bunch of endive, a bunch of escarole, some pre-mixed you can buy it, and we take, a, you know, a small square of the garden, and we put it down like it's salt and pepper, we give a really, really light cover to it, we put some misters on it, we keep it misted so that it comes up, and in about three weeks, we've got baby greens that are about, what, three, four inches tall, and we can go in there and we cut them with a sharp knife. And they go, they're beautiful, straight into a salad. Maybe we chill them first so they're nice and cold and crisp. And then we cut a little bit more the next day and a little bit more the next day. By the time we cut the whole square, well, the first part we cut is growing back. We can cut it again. We usually get two or three cuts out of that. So that's 21 days. So we got in that world, we're at 9 to 21 days from start to eat. Those are quick, quick turnaround. Another one is what I call aquaponics hacks. Here's a couple of them. One, we use green onions all the time. I think green onions are one of the most fantastic foods on the planet. They make everything taste better. I make a stir fry, big handful of green onions go on at the end. Like right when you put it on the plate so that they don't get cooked to, to nothingness. Salad, throw some green onions on it. You know, I did a... A couple weeks ago, I cooked some steaks that we have from the steer that we bought. And I made a, I guess that what you would call it, is a parsley and cilantro pesto. 
with almonds instead of pine nuts to go with it. And so I made the steak, and I made some, some roasted potatoes with golden beets, and I made this, this incredible pesto that was good with the potatoes and it was good with the steak. But those golden beets and potatoes just took a, just a nice sprinkling of really thin sliced on the bias green onion on top of them. And the whole thing was just magnificent. Okay? But the green onions were like that final thing. And then that parsley and cilantro, which we can grow like baby greens, by the way. Really, really easy. Okay. So the green onions, aquaponics hack. What you do, you go to the store, you buy freaking green onions. Okay? You cut about three quarters of an inch off the end, the root end, and you don't use it. You stick it in your aquaponics ebb and flow bed. In about three days, it'll have a couple inches of growth on it. In about two weeks, it'll be a whole new green onion. And you take your knife and you cut it off right at the surface of the, the ebb and flow bed, and you take those, those pieces in, a couple of them, and you use them again. And it grows back again. And then you cut it and it grows back again. And you cut it and it grows back again. And when, you're, when you don't have any, you go to the store and you buy some, you keep just dropping more, and pretty soon you have a whole bed of nothing but green onions growing. You can do that with a wicking bed. Right now I'm doing that with green onions in, in more of It's not even a wicking bed. I had a big black, uh, probably like a three-gallon container that one of my big trees came in from the nursery. I put about four inches of rocks in the bottom of it, and I filled it up with potting soil. And I set it on a ledge in one of my garden ponds. I put about an inch of mulch on the top of it so as it wicked the water up, it wouldn't dry out on the surface. And I just started sticking all of the green onion heads in there. They're all growing now. Right? So little hacks like that where we take food from the grocery store and we use it two or three times instead of once. Celery. I'll tell you what I do with celery. I pull all of the outer parts of the celery out and that last little bit of heart and the base, I stick that in an ebb and flow bed. It starts growing. You got cutting celery. You don't ever really get a huge stalks of celery like the like it was originally, but like for soups and sautés and stuff, it's just be it actually has a lot more flavor because it's not blanched. Because that's how you make celery have that nice white color. They they tie it together and they don't let it open up and the inside stays white. So you have more of the strong celery flavor, the greens and all. The top parts go right in salads. Right, that's another hack. Another one, garlic. Garlic is like one of my favorite ones. I learned this from David. If you just take garlic, you buy the grocery store. And just take the cloves and stick them in an ebb and flow bed. They just start growing, like, in a couple days. Well, what I kind of modified that to is I buy, you know, big heads of garlic. And when you take garlic apart, you'll have, like, 70% of the cloves will be nice, big, plump garlic cloves. Okay? And then the very center, there'll be, like, five or ten really itty-bitty ones. They just are too much of a pain in the ass. So a lot of people throw them away. Some people go through the trouble to peel them and still use them or whatever. I just take all of those and put them in one of my ebb and flow beds. And they start growing garlic. And you use that like chives. Instead of waiting to grow into a whole new garlic plant, when it gets up about 12 inches tall, it's still nice and thin. You cut them all down. You chop them up fine. You use them like garlic chives. So that's oh, 10 days. 10 days before you can really start cutting it and using it. Maybe maybe 15 days. And that's repurposing, reusing. So now we 
we, yeah, we bought it from the grocery store, but now we've used it three, four, five. And the garlic, you might use that ten times before it finally like just kind of starts getting kind of hairy on you, and you yank it out, and you drop some new ones in. And they're basically free because they were the part you were going to throw away. Green onions and freaking garlic, just great little hacks. You, I have it as aquaponics hacks, but again, those can be done in, in a container. Uh, but boy, the garlic really takes off fast in the ebb and flow beds. I mean, like almost two or three days, and it's, it's a couple inches tall. Another one is quail or, or, and or chickens. The quail really is my preference here because here's how I look at it. Let's say you find a local person that you can get chicks from. If you're smart, what you're going to do is you're going to get your chicks when they're three weeks old. Why? Because you don't know anything about quail yet. You're your first quail. And I found most of these people, if they're selling them like for a dollar a bird, if you say, if you'll raise them till three weeks, I'll give you $2 a bird, they'll do it. They're set up for it. They know how to do it. You don't yet. So at three weeks, your quail are out of the brooder. They go straight into a cage or a quail tractor or an aviary, whatever it is. So we take those little quails, which we have 10 quails. We have 20 bucks into them. We start feeding them quail feed. Very, very inexpensive. Quail don't eat that much food. They eat By the time they make adulthood, they eat about one and a half to two pounds a month a bird. So if you have 10 birds... You're not even going to go through one bag of feed a month. Especially if you're augmenting it with any other kind of stuff eventually. But just start out feeding them what they have. They start laying at seven weeks. So in four weeks, from the time you get your quail and put them in your cage, quail eggs start coming out of their asses. Now you get your little quail cutters, you learn how to cook with quail eggs. You start using them. You put them into your diet. One month in, you're getting eggs. Fresh eggs. Chickens, I love chickens. But you're looking at 22 to 26 weeks Verse four. Four. Get it? Four. You don't even need your thumb to show how many weeks it is with one hand. That's quick results. Now you feel like you've gotten somewhere. So what do we do next? Now we want to learn how to actually brood quail. So now that we have our existing quail system, adult birds are happy, they're laying eggs, they're being fed, we're going to say, gee, let's look at what we've got. Huh. I've got four females and six males. Hmm, I don't need that many males, do I? So we're going to keep maybe two males. So we're going to learn to process and cook the other males. And that could work out that way. You could have less males, but you're going to have some males that you're processing. Buy a few more birds than you're going to want if they were all females. You're going to have enough males to have that surplus. So now we're going to process the males. Now we've learned to process and cook the meat. So now we have eggs and we've had our first meat. And at this point, we're into it four to five weeks. So now we get our hands on an incubator, and we get, we get everything set up to brood. So now we set aside a dozen quail, just a dozen. We put them in the, in the incubator, we hatch them, we brood them, and we learn to brood. And then they go into grow out cages, much like our adults are in. And in like another three weeks, we process them. We've now processed a dozen meat birds. Now we decide if we like this. And if we do, if we do at this point, we're into it about three months. We're getting a steady supply of eggs. We've, we've put meat into our family twice and one time probably several meals. We're into it for very little money. And the worst case scenario is it doesn't really work for us and we'll have no problem either eating our birds and selling the stuff or selling the stuff and the birds together to somebody else that wants to do it. 
probably won't happen because we got quick results. Chickens, what I like about chickens is, yeah, they take longer, but they're more effective at the last one that I have on this list, which is composting. So I think if we can set up a chicken system or a chicken-quail hybrid system, and by the way, I was a little worried, like, would bantam chickens and quail get along? They pretty much ignore each other. They don't even care. There's no problems whatsoever with it. Now, I think in a confined cage that might be different, but if we can do some kind of a run system, a couple bantam chickens in there, because I know what's going to happen eventually. These bantams are going to go broody, and I'm not going to brood, and I'm not going to incubate. And I'm going to take quail eggs and stick them under a bantam chicken. She's going to hatch them and take care of them. And there's my meat yield. See, so then you start putting this together. But put the composting of the chicken. Because that's the other one that's composting. We get some chickens. We put them in some sort of coop and run system. We set up a composting system. And you're going to have good quality compost in about three to four weeks that we can start putting into our little beds, our little container gardens and stuff like that to get even better results from then. And as we phase that into larger scale gardening, now we've got a system. And that's so important that the whole thing works as a system rather than just a bunch of disjointed parts. And that's what I would advise anybody today. Like after all the shit that I've done, I would start with a small aquaponic system, microgreens and baby greens as part of it or something else, quail and or chickens, and a composting system to feed back into these other systems. And then I'd put a small garden in. And I'd do it in that order. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying that those things will give you, you know, you think about that, like if you just do a regular garden, six months in you're starting to harvest some stuff, you've had pest problems, whatever. Six months into this, you've got a steady supply of meat and eggs and salad. And that's not bad, is it? That's a great gateway into this whole thing. My final thoughts on this is remember, again, if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. We don't do this to be miserable. We don't do this because we want to work our brains out. We do this because we want to be innately human. And human beings were designed, in my opinion, to work with the natural systems of the world. To me, we are natural predators. That's, that's what we are. We are not vegetarian or vegan creatures. We're omnivores. And that means that we should be eating vegetables and fruits and nuts and meat and dairy and everything. A wide variety of the best quality food we can get. And we should be involved in some level in its production. And to me, that's what homesteading is really all about. So if you've been kicking this around, I invite you to give it a try with the stuff you've heard today. If you've struggled with it, I invite you to back up a little bit, kind of hit the reset button, and take this vantage point or this view at it, do some high, quick return things, get that momentum and that excitement, and then slowly phase in other things. With that, we've come to the end of today's show, and if you're going to be doing this stuff, sooner or later you're going to be achy and sore, you're going to twist the knee or something. And uh, that brings us to our Amazon item of the day today. The Amazon item of the day today is Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone uh, Ointment, and its primary ingredient that it does all this with is a, a miracle plant that I think belongs on your homestead called comfrey. And I'm telling you guys, I have heard from well over 100 people at this point who have sent me emails and said, Jack, I tried this for fill-in-the-blank, and I, I feel so much better, or it's worked so well for me. Bruises, torn ligaments, strains, sprains, aches, pains, you name it. I personally credit for, for 
allowing my knee to recover without surgery. Um, I was told there's no way you're going to recover the, without surgery. And those of you that have seen me since I had that knee injury, there's really no difference to me now than the way I was before the injury. Uh, for a while, I worried about re-injuring it. Now I don't even think about it anymore. Um, it's a testament to the power of comfrey and the other herbs that are in this stuff. And of all of the commercially made product, it's the best one that I've found. It's a, a favorite of the audience and the community. And please, if you've used it and you've had good results, let me know about it. Better yet, comment in today's review. And remember, you can always find the Amazon item of the day at tspaz.com. And if you do your online shopping through tspaz.com, whenever you're going to shop on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com first. If you're not going to buy the item of the day, you don't care about it, doesn't matter. Just go there first and do your online shopping through TSPAS. You will help the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. And though it's obvious, I'll repeat it, TSPAS is spelled T-S-P-A-Z.com, TSPAS.com. All right. Uh, with that, let's talk about our song of the day. Um, it is amazing to me the continued synchronicity of the show topic and the songs that John Adams is picking. It almost seems weird. It's too consistent to not be weird. Uh, and I, I, I have a, a big belief in universal synchronicity if we look for it and expect it. Uh, this song is by the Judds. Old school Judds, man. We're about 1985 here. It's called Grandpa. Tell me about the good old days. A um, couple things with this song for me. Number one, when I listened to this song this morning, I thought to myself, where were you in 1985, Jack? I was in Jacksonville, Florida. It was in like sixth grade. I spent most of my weekends at my grandparents' house fishing in the lake that I could walk to from their house. I spent most of my weekdays with my friends in the Florida swamps running around. And at that time, I had four grandparents. And my grandparents were important to me. With the way my parents were, my grandparents on both sides did more to raise me than either of my parents. And it was about a year after that that the grandmother that I was closest to passed away. We moved back to Pennsylvania. And I joined the Army, you know, four years later. While I was in basic training, my other grandmother died. And before I was out of the military, both of my grandfathers had passed away. So when this song was released, I had four grandparents. And not long after, I had none. And today I'm a grandfather with two grandchildren. It puts that dash that I always talk about making the most out of in your life in perspective for you. So I wanted to point that out. But on today's topic, a big part of this homesteading movement is nostalgic. We've gotten, we've gone too far too fast, in my opinion, on some levels. We've developed the ability to do things before we've developed the maturity of how to handle that responsibly in some ways. And it's not all bad. I'm grateful to live in the Internet age. I couldn't do what I do. I couldn't be talking to you right now without the technology that we have today. I couldn't produce a show that in 1985 took 20 people to produce with one person if we didn't have the technology that we do today and access to it, along with all the information that teaches you how to do it. But there's a point, like I said earlier, where enough is enough. There's a piece of us that wants the simplicity that was everything before this all started. It's not that long ago. It's when the song was released, honestly, 1985. You know, they were yearning it for it then, but like to now, the good old days are 1985. Before everybody had a cell phone. Before everybody got a pager and then got a cell phone. 
Before CDs were a big thing, people actually had tapes, and you made tapes at night at home. People gardened, and they fished, and they hunted. But even then, 1985, we knew it wasn't what it was. That further back, when our grandparents were growing up, when they grew food because they had to, that there was something special in that, because it's innately human. So I think this song fits perfectly with today's theme. Because I think when we homestead, we're trying to not recapture all of those days from times past. Because there's things that we're so blessed to have today that they didn't have back then. But the good parts of them. The things that made people closer to their families and to their communities. And frankly, to the source of their food. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Tell me about the good old days Sometimes it feels like This world's gone crazy Grandpa Take me back to yesterday When the line between right and wrong Didn't seem so hazy Did lovers really fall in love to stay And stand beside each other, come what may Was a promise really something people kept Not just something they would say Did families really bow their heads to pray Daddy's really never gone away Oh, oh, Grandpa Tell me about the good old Tell me about the good old days